Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, featuring your host, Anna Jaworski. Our program is a program designed to empower the CHD or congenital heart defect community. Our program may also help families who have children who are chronically ill by bringing information and encouragement to you in order to become an advocate for your community. Now, here is Anna Jaworski. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I am Anna Jaworski and the host of Heart to Heart with Anna. We are in Season 9, and our theme this season is Advancements in Congenital Heart Disease. And today's show is A Nurse's Perspective, Changes in Care Over the Last 30 Years, Part 2. Our guest is Dina Barber. Dina Barber graduated from Kent State University with a bachelor's degree in nursing in 1983. For the last 34 years, she has worked in Akron, Ohio as a nurse, but over the last 14 years, Dina has become a subject matter expert in adult congenital heart disease care, including the natural course of congenital heart disease in adults and the challenges this unique population of survivors face. Dina's nursing passion is caring for adults living with congenital heart disease. As nurse program coordinator, she has the privilege of managing and coordinating the specialized care of adult congenital heart patients at Akron Children's Hospital. Last week, Dina came on the show to talk to us about the advancements she has seen in care for patients with congenital heart defects thanks to interventional cardiology and changes in devices and drugs used in the CHD community. Today, we're going to talk to Dina about changes regarding treatment of some specific congenital heart defects. Welcome back to Heart to Heart with Anna Dina. Thank you. I'm really excited about today's episode, although, boy, do we have a lot to cover. I know. We have to get into it right away. So, Dina, one of the first congenital heart defects to receive life-saving treatment was Tetralogy of Fallot, thanks to the development of the Blaylock Tussic Shunt. In my book, The Heart of a Mother, the author of the introduction was a great-grandmother born with Tetralogy of Fallot. She shared with our readers how she didn't have her first surgery until she was 10 years old because she was born in 1938. Her first surgery was a POTS shunt. Can you tell us about the changes you've seen in treatment for children born with TOF? That's funny. She should mention the POTS shunt. There was a POTS shunt and something called the Waterston shunt. And those were some really, really, really early things done as palliations for our patients. Those two procedures aren't done anymore. The first Blaylock Tossig shunt you had talked about was in 1944. And then the first open repair for Tetralogy of Fallot by Dr. Lillehei was in 1954. But it really wasn't until the mid-1970s that they got into more of the intracardiac repair for younger children. That's when echo became big. And then prostaglandins, which are the medicine they give to keep some of the pieces parts open in the heart so that the blood flow can get through. So we saw kids, younger kids, in four or five, typically by their fifth birthday. But now, since the 1990s and on, which really is not that long ago, we've been doing earlier and earlier repairs, sometimes less than one year old. 
These are still not a cure. These are still repairs, but they are really, really good repairs. But things, of course, aren't always going to stay as we would want them. So even though we're doing earlier repairs and we have better medicines and treatments, we still need to watch quite a few things for our Tetralogy of Fallot patients. It's funny that you should mention the other shunt because first she had the pot shunt and then she got the, is it Waterston? Waterston shunt. Mm -hmm. Then she got a Waterston shunt later, and I thought, I never, ever hear about those shunts anymore. So I was wondering. No, we do not do those. (laughs) Mm -mm. Yeah, they were the best at the time, but now we don't use those at all. Right. And I think it's pretty amazing how they are able to operate on these tetralogy patients younger and younger than what they were a long time ago. Of course, they couldn't do it before she was 10 just because they weren't doing surgery on children. No. No, they weren't doing surgery really until the 50s. Nobody really knew how to do anything. And then the more complex repairs, of course, in the 70s. Then the newer repairs in the 90s. And they're good repairs, but again, patients still need long-term follow-up. And there becomes issues with the pulmonary valve, which is always a problem in tetralogy of flow. Sometimes it's missing. Sometimes it's really, really narrow. Sometimes it's narrow below the valve. So we watch the pulmonary valve competency. And then we need to watch all of our patients for arrhythmia issues. Anytime you do surgery on a heart, there's scarring, and scarring can disrupt the normal electrical patterns, so we watch for those. I think probably the biggest thing that's coming out right now is when do you replace the pulmonary valve? That's being studied by many, many different centers, and are we doing it too soon? Are we doing it too late? What's the ideal timing? Because every time you replace that valve, you start the clock ticking again. Right. It's only a matter of time before that valve needs to be replaced. So you don't want to do it too early, but you don't want to wait too late till it's the right side of the heart is damaged and can't recover from that. Right, right. Okay, well, that's Tetralogy of Fallot. Another CHD that has seen some major changes over the last 30 years or so is that of transposition of the great arteries or transposition of the great vessels. It's also TGV, but we'll just call it TGA. I have friends who have had the mustard procedure done, but you never (laughs) hear about that anymore. So can you tell us what's new with TGA? Yes, and I want to say that we are specifically talking about DTGA. There's also LTGA, but we're specifically talking at this point about DTGA. This is the cyanotic lesion that's life-threatening, very, very young. It's the hole and the bridge between two of the major vessels are not kept open when a baby is born, it is almost a death sentence. So we've learned to identify it very, very early, and we've learned to use medications to keep the hole in the bridge between the vessels open. In 1964, there was a physician by the name of Dr. Mustard, and he did what's known as an atrial switch. Right around that same time, there was a physician by the name of Dr. Senning. So sometimes you'll hear people who had a Senning or a Mustard, at least the patients I care for. These are called atrial switches. The patient has two separate circulations. So a circulation goes to the lungs but never gets to the body. A circulation goes to the body but never gets oxygenated blood. So in the 60s, they figured out something in the cath lab that had to have been done earlier in the surgical procedure. They were able to create an artificial hole so these two separate circulations could mix. And that helped patients survive until they could have the mustard procedure. But that left the right-sided pump going to the body instead of to the lungs. The right ventricle wasn't made to pump to the body. It was made to pump to the lungs, and we know that it gets tired over the years. So in, I think, let's see, 1991, Dr. Jatin started something called the arterial switch. So the mustard is known as the atrial switch, but the Jatin is known as the arterial switch, and that's what I see now. That's These patients are in their early 20s, and they're now coming to us, and they have 
what we believe is going to end up being very, very good long-term care because the right ventricle stays the pump for the lungs and their left pump or the left ventricle stays the pump to the body. And those two pumps, that's what they were made to do. So they actually cut the aorta and the pulmonary artery. They detach them. They reattach them to the opposite root. And then the coronary arteries have to be transplanted. And then the patient is left with what is basically a regular, if I could use the word, normal circulation. So this is new. This is just in the 90s. And we are just now starting to see the patients in their early to mid-20s now with this arterial switch. So this has been a huge change in care for our transposition patient. Yes. And like you said, it used to be a death sentence if it wasn't caught early enough. It's really a scary congenital heart defect. Yes. Very, very scary. One of the scariest to me. Yeah. Thank you for sharing information about the changes in TOF and TGA. We're going to take a quick break, but don't leave yet, listeners, because when we come back, we're going to talk to Dina about some new procedures done to help those with other CHDs. We'll be back after this brief break. When I saw so many of these CHD groups growing, I found family just ready to join me. Anyone who is a member of the adult congenital heart defect community can be a guest on our show. We have a great year planned and we look forward to sharing other interesting topics. Heart to Heart with Nicole and David, serving the ACHD community, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at HeartToHeartWithAnna.com. That's Anna at HeartToHeartWithAnna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. Today's show is A Nurse's Perspective. Changes in Care Over the Last 30 Years, Part 2, and our guest is Akron Children's Hospital Nurse Program Coordinator for the Adult Congenital Heart Service, Dina Barber. And we've been talking to Dina about the changes she's witnessed in care for those born with TOF and TGA. Dina, one of the big problems that many people face is that they have a leaky aortic valve or they have a bicuspid aortic valve. And replacing the aortic valve with a pig valve or a mechanical valve doesn't seem like the best option because they wear out after a while and they need to be replaced. So can you tell us what's new with replacing the aortic valve? We've not made a tremendous amount of strides. We still use homographs, which are human donors. We still use tissue valves, which are either pig or cow. And we still use mechanical valves. The nice thing about the homographs and the tissue valves is they don't require Coumadin or anticoagulation, but they only last 10, maybe 20 years if we're lucky. Mechanical valves last longer, 20 to 30 plus years, but they require a fairly significant amount of anticoagulation. I think one of the newest things is there's something called the Onyx. It's capital O, capital N, dash, capital X, and it is a mechanical valve. It can be used in the aortic or mitral position, and what we like about it is the requirements for anticoagulation are less, so you don't have as high a risk for bleeding. You still need to take Coumadin, but instead of the number being 2.5 to 3.5, we can drop that down closer to the 2 level, so I think that's really been quite a big change for aortic valve replacement. We still do the Ross procedure, and that's where you take the patient's own pulmonary valve, you move it to the aortic position, and then you give them a tissue pulmonary valve. And that's still a very, very common procedure also. 
but I would have to say the onyx valve is one of the newest things for aortic valve replacement. It's exciting to me to hear that there might be an option that doesn't require quite as much anticoagulation because I know that's a real problem trying to get those INRs the right number, especially for kids who are going through puberty when all of their chemicals in their body seem to be kind of out of whack. Growth spurts, toddlers and children are notorious and teenagers for not wanting to have a routine diet, so it is quite a challenge. So yes, we are very happy with the onyx valve so far. Okay, well, another new procedure that I've heard about is the maze procedure, which helps people with arrhythmias. Can you talk to us about this procedure and what treatments or drugs this procedure might possibly prevent? The maze procedure has been around a while, especially in acquired heart disease community. It is where there is a surgical scarring made in the typically the right atrium. It can also be the left, depending on the patient's anatomy. And it is for atrial tachycardias, especially atrial fibrillation. If you've had any right-sided heart surgery or atrial dilation for any reason, you're prone to atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter. And usually you have to use antiarrhythmic medications and you typically have to have anticoagulation if it's chronic. So doing the maze procedure, especially if you have to have something done anyway, is a very common thing. And surgeons are being very good about asking us to look at the arrhythmia burden Make sure the patient is not a candidate for the maze before they go in there because if you're already in the chest, let's do everything we can to help our patient at the same time. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. That's great. My son actually had a partial maze procedure is what they told us. And it's just like Mm -hmm. you said, he was having his third open heart surgery and he was having a lot of major stuff done. One of the things that they decided to do was try to limit some of the arrhythmias that they were seeing, and how come it? So far, so good. It's really been great. Good, good. That's good to hear. Well, we have another segment coming up that's going to be huge, so we're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, we're going to talk to Dina about the changes she has seen in the care of babies with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, and there have been a lot, so don't go far. We'll be right back. The most common themes that I hear is why. She always needed a lot of attention. She had strokes. Even though it's a natural inclination to withdraw from the CHD community, I think being a part of it helped me be part of the solution. Heart to Heart with Michael. Please join us every Thursday at noon Eastern. I'm Michael Lieben, and I'll be your host as we talk with people from around the world who have experienced those most difficult moments. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at Heart to Heart with That's Anna at Heart to Heart with Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Welcome back to our show, Heart to Heart with Anna, a show for the congenital heart defect community. We've been talking to Dina about the changes that she has seen in Tetralogy of Fallot, TGA, valve procedures. Now we're going to talk to her about hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And those of you who have been listening to my show for a while know this is what I'm most passionate about because this is what my son was identified with. And this is what really drew me into the CHD world as a mom and as a researcher. So over 20 years ago, when my son was born, there were four options for care, Dina. There was abortion, if you found out in utero, which many of us did not know. 
until after the child was born. So then they offered us compassionate care, which is where you would just take the baby home to let him die. Then there was the Norwood procedure and then transplantation. So can you talk to us about the options for care for parents today who find out that their baby is going to be born with HLHS? Well, we still have basically the same options, but I think there's been more detail added to each one. I think one of the biggest things that we have now is early fetal diagnosis. It doesn't change the outcome for the baby. The baby's still going to have this ventricle, hypoplastic left heart, but the parents are much more prepared. The care team is much more prepared, and all of that leads to better outcomes for the baby. You can talk about where to deliver, where is the baby going to go, where is the mom going to go. We talked about prostaglandins that keep the blood circulation flowing. Will the baby need prostaglandins? And if so, where is the best place for the baby to receive that? So we still have if the parents want to terminate. If the outcome is dismal, and I do hate to talk about that, but if the outcome is dismal because there are other compounding issues, compassionate care is still an option. We still have the Norwood or the interventional Norwood, depending on your center and what your baby's diagnosis actually would be. And transplantation remains an option. It is saved for the sickest babies that might not tolerate a surgery of another type. So really, we still have those same four. But I think the other big thing that's new is something called NPCQIC. Anna, have you ever heard of that before? A little bit. I could use a primer on it. Okay. This is just a fascinating thing. It almost gets me a little teary-eyed when I think about it. NPCQIC is a collaborative. I'll give you what it stands for. National Pediatric Cardiology Quality Improvement Collaborative. And this is specifically started for hypoplastic left heart patients. And it is a unique collaborative between parents and caregivers. And it has made some incredible strides in the care of infants with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. There are stages between each of the surgeries, and this addresses many of those issues with growth and feeding and weight gain and home monitoring. And the interstage package that they have developed is it's just unbelievable. And what is so wonderful is that, yes, there are caregivers, but the parents have just as big of a say in what is happening. Research is coming out of it, and more and more centers are getting on board. So standardization of care is also huge. And I think this is between the early fetal diagnosis and this collaborative, I think we are really changing the face of the outcomes for our single ventricle patients. Well, it's interesting what you said about the standardization of care, because later this season, Dr. Gail Wernowski is going to come on my show and talk about trying to create a roadmap for success for children Mm -hmm. with a variety, not just HLHS, but with a variety of congenital heart defects. And I think the standardization of care is really critical. But one of the things that is interesting, Dina, is the very first episode of this season, I had a mom come on and talk to us about stem cell therapy for her child who was born with HLHS. Have you heard of that before? I have. Again, the disclaimer being that I'm adult congenital. So what is happening with the infants is not as clear to me. I do know that there have been a few adult patients that have received stem cell treatment. And that's a fascinating topic also. I know it exists, but I can't say that I'm very well versed in it. Dina, do you remember for a while there, I remember there was a lot of talk 
about a biventricular repair for HLHS kids. I never hear about that anymore, but for a while that was kind of all the rage. I think that was like in, I want to say it was in the late 90s, maybe the early 2000s. Yeah, always better to have two pumping chambers than one, but most of the time, obviously, that is not an option for our patients. It's still discussed. Every baby that that is born pretty much throughout the United States that's going to be at a bigger center will be discussed multiple times by cardiologists, surgeons, patient conferences, we call them, and we go over the options, look at the anatomy. If there's any way to make somebody a biventricular repair, that would be the goal, but unfortunately, most of these children are not it's just not an option for them. At least at this point in time with our technology that we have now, it's just not an option. Right. But there are some programs. I know there's one here in Texas, and of course, there's one in Boston, which is where it was developed to begin with, where babies are having surgery in utero. And I actually did a show about that in one of my previous seasons. Is that something that you're seeing catching on to have surgery in utero? Because that to me is kind of scary because it really puts the baby at risk and possibly the mom at risk, I would imagine. Again, not something that I would say I'm well-versed in. It is out there. Cincinnati does some in utero interventions, Philadelphia, Boston, but it is definitely what we would consider cutting edge and definitely only at certain centers that have developed some of the expertise in something like that. It's actually quite exciting if you think about it, but yeah, scary also. I'd have to agree. This is what I mean about, oh my gosh, there have been so many changes. <laughs> I can't imagine now having to think about, oh, should I save my cord blood? Oh, should my baby have surgery in utero? You know, maybe possibly having to fly to another state. Of course, we're talking about the United States, but I have listeners all over the world. Some of these procedures are not yeah. even yeah. considered in other parts of the world, I imagine. No. No, I have to agree. Some of the areas of the world wouldn't have this as an option. It's exciting and it's scary and it's new. And I think there's more to come as the years go by. There'll be much, much more to come. I think so too. And I'm really, really excited about the stem cell studies that are being done because they seem to be having such an outstanding outcome. Mm -hmm. And I'm hopeful, like you said, if they're starting to use it with adults too, I know that you can get stem cells in places other than cord blood. So I'm really curious to see what is going to happen with that in the future. I think that is really the cutting edge. That and things that you can do genetically to help people. I'm not a doctor. I'm just a mom. And so (laughs) my understanding of all of this is very rudimentary. But I love having guests like you who are very well-versed come on and teach me because I feel like there's so much to learn right now. There is. There's a a lot for caregivers. and, And you're not just a mom. You are your son's mom. And it's never just a mom because if it weren't for the moms, we wouldn't have our patients and they wouldn't do as well as they. So just just something I wanted to say. <laughs> when my son had his surgeries in the 90s, he actually had something really radical done. He didn't have a bidirectional glen. Instead, they gave him a fenestrative fontan. So he just had two instead of three procedures, which is typically mm-hmm. done. But mm-hmm. he wasn't a classic right, right. HLHS, so it's not surprising that he would have something different. But we have seen some changes in the surgeries that are done because it was cutting edge at that time for my son to have a fenestrative fontan. Now they're talking about extra cardiac fontan. So can you tell us a little bit more about some of the different surgeries that are done, either stage two or stage three? Well, I think the biggest changes have been in the type of fontan that is done. In the early 70s, it was called an atriopulmonary connection, so an AP connection. And that was really the only way to save a baby's life at that particular point in time. 
when we got into the late 70s and then into 1980, they did something called a lateral tunnel fontan, which is a lot like it sounds. It's done in the middle of the heart and it's a tunnel to connect the parts that are not connected by the anatomy of the patient. And then in the late 80s, they started doing what's called the extracardiac fontan, which is exactly what that sounds. It runs along the outside of the heart and it connects the parts that were not able to be connected and it bypasses the pump on the right side of the body so that the blood passively gets to the lungs, which is the classic diagnosis of the Fontan procedure. So those are the big changes as far as the third stage. We are doing earlier diagnosis, fetal diagnosis, and that prepares us to do typically a three-stage repair, the Norwood or interventional Norwood, which is done in the first days of life. And patients still go on to either have a hemifontan or a bidirectional glen, typically, which is the second stage, and that's done about five to six months of age. And then the fontan, which would in most cases be an extracardiac fontan, would be done three, four, five years old, depending on the center that you're in. Well, one problem that has cropped up now more and more with Fontan patients surviving to adulthood is the development of aortic aneurysms. And my son ended up developing an aortic aneurysm. I did not realize that was a possible, quote unquote, common complication until he started to develop it and we watched it grow for six years, Dina. It was really, Mm -hmm. really scary. And then finally they said, well, we need to take care of this aneurysm. And so while we're in there, let's convert his fontan to an extracardiac fontan and do a maze procedure. Boom, they just did a ton of things to him. It was really, really scary. But can you tell us about some of these long-term consequences we're seeing of the fontan, like the development of aortic aneurysms? Well, I think your son had quite a few of them. It's kind of an uncomfortable discussion, but 30 years ago, we really didn't know what to expect. Even 20 years ago, we didn't really know what to expect because we didn't have many people that were in their 20s. So when you get into the early 2000s and now into the 2017 era, the 2010s, I guess you would say, we're now having much larger population of young adults to be able to recognize what some of the issues are. That's how medicine usually goes. You know, we don't like to talk about when we didn't have very many survivors, but the sad fact is we didn't. So we didn't know what to expect. Now that we have a larger cohort of patients, we're able to watch them and understand, again, this is a repair. It's not a cure. And we do know that we're lacking one of the pumping chambers of the heart. So we watch for the function of the heart. We watch for arrhythmias of the heart. And we watch for aneurysms of the aorta. We watch for leaking of the aortic, what's called the neoaortic valve. And we watch for all the same things we typically watch for in other patients, exercise tolerance, functioning, how are they doing in their regular daily activities. So I think those are some of the things. But I think the most important part to remember is we just didn't know what to watch for. So somebody like your son is at the right time for us to realize, oh, we're going to end up with some atrial arrhythmias. Let's see if we can do a maze. The lateral tunnel is not holding up as well and not doing as well for patients. Can we convert him? to the extracardiac, which they were able to do, and then they were also able to address that aneurysm. I think it's scary for parents, especially because they live through those first couple of years with their child, having those operations, and you're hopeful there's a very quiet period, it seems to be, and then about 10 years or so after the completion of the Fontan, maybe a little bit longer than that, we start seeing some other problems, and I think that's hard because you're hopeful. You've gone through all of this. This poor child has had all of these operations and done all of these things, And is there a chance that now we're done? And unfortunately, we're not. 
But fortunately, we realize that and we're able to look for these things and catch these things earlier and earlier. Yeah, I like everything that you said because I totally agree with you. You are very hopeful after you have these surgeries and you see your kids do well. It's funny that you said what you did. We had exactly 10 years before we started to see some problems. It was 10 years post-Fontian that we started to notice that he just wasn't as pink as we would like him to be. He was starting to have exercise issues. Everything you just said. (laughs) That's exactly what happened with us. And took him back into the cath lab after 10 years not having had a cath. And that's when we started to see that there were some problems with his Fontian and At that point, it was a case of just monitoring him, hoping he could grow to adult size before they had to actually go in and try and do a more definitive repair. But like you said, this is not a cure. And there are lifelong issues. And this is why it's so scary to me that some people are lost to follow-up care because it's a condition that needs to be taken care of on a regular basis for the rest of their lives. It sure is, and that's about the best way to state that is that it's not the cure. But we remain hopeful, and we're not looking for bad things to happen. We just know there's a natural progression, and we want to address that as soon as possible. We want our patients to be informed. We don't want you to be blindsided by things that may come up. We don't want to scare you, but you deserve to know. You deserve to know what potentially could be an issue. What are we watching for? Why do we do those holters? Why is it important for me to get on the treadmill? What are you trying to accomplish by the tests that you're ordering and the exams that you're doing? Talking about not wanting to be blindsided, to me, it's scary every single time Alex had a cardiology appointment, I would be filled with dread because I was always waiting for that other shoe to drop, Dina. And and I was just mm. terrified that my seemingly healthy child had something invisible going on, invisible to me, and mm-hmm. that they were going to tell me, okay, now we need to do I don't know, something that I wasn't prepared for. And I think that's one of the reasons I've done so much research over the years. And I put books together and I've started this podcast because I'm just craving information all the time. I don't want to be caught unawares. I don't want to be caught flat-footed. And not that I'm looking for things to be wrong with my son, but if there is going to be something wrong, I want to know about it as soon as possible so we can have the best outcome for care. And my son's 22 years old now. He works a full-time job. He's writing books. He has a great quality of life. He loves to travel and does all kinds of fabulous things. And I think if I hadn't been as on top of things, we might not have had such a good outcome. I agree. Who lives with the patient every day? Who sees their loved one every day? The moms, the dads, the husbands, the wives, the girlfriends. You know, these are the people that we have to rely on because patients live with these defects and they live with their limitations and they don't necessarily realize that things are going on because this is how they live every day. But you'll hear the mom say, no, no, he's always helping me with the laundry. And now I ask him and he's, you know, he just gets short of breath and he says, okay, mom, as soon as I rest a little bit. And you pick up on things because family members can tell you what they see. Oh, you are so right. I think the changes that happen to the patients happen so gradually that they just become accustomed to it and they really can't see it as objectively as the parents. And you know, sometimes the parents can't see it as objectively as a doctor who only sees a child or a patient yes. every six months yes. or the nurse who hasn't yes. seen that kid in a year. And the nurses especially are really quick to pick up. And how you all remember all of your different people as well as you do and keep everybody straight is beyond me. 
Well, because they're people. They're not just patients, they're people. And we know they have lives and they have jobs and they have hobbies and they have pets. You know, the more I can find out about a patient, the better my day is. These are people. They're entrusting their lives to us. And the more I know them and the more I understand them, the more we can help them. Well, I love that. And I love all the information that you shared today. I think this is a treasure trove. Oh, that was a tough one, Anna. That was a really tough one. I know. We covered a lot. Yes, and we did. It's amazing to me all the changes that are happening. I'm very hopeful for the future. I think that the new procedures and new drugs that are coming out, I actually had a show last season where I talked to a pharmacist about some of the new anticoagulation drugs. Oh, yeah, the NOAC coming out. Oh, they're phenomenal. I hope we can use them eventually. Yeah, yes, they are phenomenal. They might have a place for congenital patients in general. It is kind of a fascinating thing. But it's slow. It's right. always slow for congenital well, because there's just not the volume and everybody's so right. different. And But it's there. It's coming. Yeah. It is coming. And so I think we're, we live in a fascinating time to watch medical technology just zoom. Yeah, explode. Mm-hmm. It just explodes. It is exploding. And we have great mediums just like this podcast where even the everyday person can get this kind of information, can be kept aware, and hopefully that'll have great outcomes for everybody because people are becoming more autonomous regarding their own care. Yes, I agree. And I think that's why nurses are, you know, I'm a nurse, so I'm going to plug the nurses, but that's why nurses are great because they (laughs) encourage patients to be autonomous and reach out and read good sites and listen to good podcasts and go to good resources and question us and challenge us. No one person, physician, nurse, patient, parent, can know everything. And that's why things like that, NPCQIC, you should look into that. I mean, they are so transparent and they take the parent and the caregiver's word is as strong and as important as any medical person. And it is, it's going to reach out to the adult community also because hypoplasts are now living, yay, to adulthood. So things like that, I think will change the face of care. I really do. I just love it. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Dina, and for doing a two-parter with me. You're welcome. I'm proud of us. We got a lot of information in a short period of time. But that does conclude this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for listening today. Come back next week to hear what doctors have learned about liver involvement in Fontan patients. You can join us now in our new Talk Back session immediately following the show on Pal Talk. Just look for the Hug Podcast chat room. And remember, my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you've been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna, with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time. We'll talk again next week. 